0: everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngānawā and Ngānbāri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go! Welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Jodie Trembath, Together with my familiar strangers, on my left I have Alex DeLoya. Hello. I have Simon Theobald sitting right in front of me. Hello. And Kylie Dolan off to my right. Hey. So just before we jump in today, just a quick reminder that we have this fantastic Facebook group that you should totally join. It's called the Familiar Strange Chats and it basically allows you to debate us about the things that we debate on the show and talk about things that we didn't make sense about. So come and join us and try and add some insight to the wonderful things that we're about to say. Are you planning to be wonderful?
1: You can even ask for just silly bits of advice that you need with your schoolwork, to be honest. We've had that.
0: Absolutely. All right, I'm going to start us off today. So I have been thinking this week about news values. Journalists look for particular aspects of a story before they determine whether or not it's what's called newsworthy and determine whether or not it's going to go to press. Those seven news values are impact timeliness, prominence, as in is it a very well-known topic, are there names in it that are going to be well-known enough to interest people? Proximity, which is about how close the story happened to the readers who are going to be reading about it. Bizarreness or novelty factor, which also tends to include the human interest factor. Conflict. We were discussing this beforehand and our executive producer commented, oh yeah, if it bleeds, it leads. That pretty much sums that one up. And finally, currency, which means is there other things going on in the news at the moment that are similar to this thing? So those are the seven news values. And I've been thinking about this because a woman got shot in Canberra the other day. It was really big news and it hit a lot of the news values because it had proximity and also had bizarreness and and it had just happened. So it had lots of news value. But I guess my question for you is, is that a reasonable thing? I mean, given the world is burning, Australia is literally burning right now. There are, there are fires to the extent that they are calling this it's literally on fire the world is in such a bizarre bizarre place why should we care about a single person getting shot she didn't die she was able to drive herself to get taken care of but why why should we care about something that is close to home and is the media on the right track what do you think
2: well it's certainly bizarre it's certainly bizarre for here and i think because it's here that idea of proximity makes people really feel that this is a relatable issue and something that concerns us because it could have been us. I think that's a huge part of why something that in a broader frame wouldn't be seen to be particularly newsworthy when you narrow it into the local relative to other things that are happening, it is It is massive.
0: So does that imply that when we think about the public interest and journalists, their role is to provide information that is in the public interest, Does the public interest therefore equate to relatability? Is it only in public interest if we feel like it could have been us?
1: I don't know about the word only, but I think that's a large part of it. Because you can also turn this around. A lot of what leads in the news actually is less likely to have an influence on my day-to-day life. Hong Kong protests, right? I follow them. I'm fascinated. At the same time, the outcome of them objectively probably won't have much of an influence in my life.
0: I think a lot of what's happening in the broader world ends up influencing Australian policy, right? Mm -hmm. And that trickles down and influences your life, but it's not a direct influence. Should we actually broaden our horizons as Australians, stop being so insular? Because not every world media norm is based around this kind of insular, parochial way of looking at stories. I have a friend who's German who talks a lot about how frustrating she finds it that Australian media is so human interest focused. She wants to hear about the big pictures because that's more normal in Germany. We don't have to be this way. Should we be trying to get people to understand things on an intimate, personal level or should we be broadening out to the big picture? Simon, what do you think?
3: You always ask the hard questions, Jodie. Thanks. I mean, part of me wants to say that, yes, we should be more broad than we currently are. I mean, the media that I read, because I'm now post-PhD and I have a lot of time on my hands, so I read quite a bit <laughs> God of media, damn you, Simon. is fairly broad and I read Persian media and stuff, so I get quite a lot of exposure to places like Afghanistan and so on. There are routinely suicide bombings in Afghanistan that kill like 40 people, 70 people, and they very rarely make the headlines in Australia, and I often think, well, you know, they should really. Like, if there was a suicide bombing in Australia that killed 70 people, it'd make headlines across the world, but it doesn't for Afghanistan. But at the same time, can we really expect people to care about things that they don't understand that are very remote to them?
1: There is also the astonishing human ability to normalise anything that happens often enough. Well, that's the point of the bizarreness value, right? Yeah, but, like, I am sure during, say, the Blitz, I am sure that people reading the news just would have read you know oh yeah this many bombs were dropped last night but you know i gotta go to work
3: keep (laughs) calm and carry on Mm -hmm. exactly
1: right because of that strange ability it puts the media in a really strange place to try and make something stand out and that's not the the normative right or wrong of it but yeah humans are weird
0: humans
2: are weird that probably helps us segue very (laughs) nicely into the next segment kylie what have you been thinking about this week well, as you know, I'm in my first year, I'm about nine months into my PhD and I'm starting to notice that I am becoming my project. It's something that I talk about a lot, not just on campus, but beyond campus. And it's something that has, I think, become a part of my identity in a way that I, I had heard about, but I hadn't really anticipated feeling quite this way about it. Recently, I had a confirmation, and I really felt in a very new and embodied way that I was standing up as me and my project. And that was a really interesting culmination and expression of this new feeling of mine. What I'm asking is kind of just a question of work life balance Mm. in some ways, and and drawing a separation between what you do and who you are. I know that a lot of people feel this way. I guess it's, it's new to me, but I wonder how you feel, how you each feel about this, and do you find it problematic? how do you try to navigate this feeling? Is it something that you you try to draw clear lines between like your vocation and your personal life or I don't know what's your approach?
0: Yeah can I answer that from a post PhD perspective? Please (laughs) (laughs) take me out of the present. (laughs) If you are somebody who identifies strongly with your work irrespective of whether or not you're doing a PhD then I think The longer you spend with a particular type of work, the more you're going to embody that work and draw that into your identity. And so since I've finished my PhD, I'm currently working for a think tank and I can definitely feel myself integrating the ideas of that work into my identity. And I'm doing the identity work to ensure that I do embody that new way of being because I want to fit in in that workplace and I want to fit in with the work that I'm doing. I think it's important to be able to work your your work life into your identity if that's something that helps you be productive, but I think it can also be quite dangerous and I think for PhD students it often is because we do go so deep so quickly. So I think it's really important to have that meta experience of watching yourself do it and remembering who you were before you started so that you can keep track of how far you've come
2: and whether or not you're okay with how you're tracking in that area. That's really helpful, I think, to think post-PhD, whatever that might be, and pre-PhD.
1: What I think about is I separate myself from my project fairly well. While I enjoy my project, my project is about bureaucracy and so it's not the most like...
0: You don't want to embody bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah,
1: so like that, that aspect's okay. But I came to an anthropology PhD kind of sideways. And when I started this, I was really just somebody getting the piece of paper because people had said, don't do it in development studies. It's too niche. So I was really just doing the anthropology thing just for the sake of it. And then at some stage, it was a bit before I went for field work. I referred to myself as an anthropologist.
0: Oh, I remember that moment.
1: It was weird. I'm like, oh, f- I'm an anthropologist. Ooh. How did this happen? <laughs> and honestly, it was it was a liberating moment. But <laughs> but it kind of was. like, And now I do call myself an anthropologist. I've really noticed it filter into my thinking in maybe not day to day life, but let's say my weekly life, like Mm. something that will come up in just discussion with my friends or something, and I'll just notice that my perspective on it. Yeah, I question I'm like, hmm, yes, well, it's interesting that you think that about the Transformers movie. But what does that say about like your social ties to other people around (laughs) you? (laughs) Like
3: I don't know. I think calling oneself an anthropologist is a bit of a wanky title. I feel like saying you're an anthropologist doesn't really mean that much. It's kind of just a
0: Well, to other people maybe, but what does it mean to you?
3: Who cares what it means to me? Well, I do or I wouldn't have asked.
1: I've got to say, as an anthropologist, (laughs) you really shouldn't be saying that. that Those are the sorts of things we ask other people.
3: (laughs) I mean, that raises another interesting question. I think the reflexive turn in anthropology has probably gone too far. Originally, anthropology had this totalizing worldview, right, that it was like god's view someone could come in and write a total ethnography of a whole society and then i think that there was in the kind of 1970s and 80s there was a big shift towards recognizing the kind of partial nature of anthropology and the researcher had all these kind of biases and that people would write themselves into the research and so on now you cannot do anthropology without recognizing your own limitations and who you are etc etc But at the same time, who I am as an anthropologist isn't really a particularly interesting question if my aim is to extrapolate the views of my field informants, interlocutors, colleagues, comrades, etc. But that doesn't really answer Carly's question, which was, do you embody your thesis? Indeed. Someone wrote on Twitter once that doing a thesis is a kind of monastic work. And I think that's kind of true. You know, you are committed to it in a way that you will commit yourself to relatively few other things in your life. And for a lot of reasons, people who are perfectly capable of PhDs don't want to do PhDs because of that very reason. They're not ready to come into something so kind of ridiculously long and torturous i was thinking insane (laughs) Yeah, yeah exactly but at the same time i think that the process of doing a phd is transformative and i didn't realize how much it had changed me until i finished i mean i only just recently finished but i spent the first at least like month with this like existential crisis where i was like i'm bereft of the thing that i have been doing that was and is me and it's only recently that i kind of feel like i've come out of that. And maybe when I get my results back, I'll feel like that all over again.
0: In the meantime, though,
3: welcome back. I am Iranian studies. There is no Sign <laughs> outside of... And I don't think it's. And if there's anything wrong with embodying that. I think as long as you can have some... Time off, and I think, you know, some people come to uni and they're here from like 8 till 7 o'clock and they work on weekends. I think that's actually probably relatively unhealthy. Um, I think it makes more sense to try and demarcate periods in your life where you are working on the project and times where you're like, no, this this is like my relaxation time and I will take this off and I will enjoy it.
0: Well, speaking of the world outside of the PhD, Simon,
3: what have you been thinking about this week? What I want to talk about is... I guess the the ethics of doing an anthropology that is dangerous, doing a piece of work in a place that is understood to be dangerous in a very literal sense and is dangerous for the people who live there and is potentially dangerous for the anthropologist. I say this because where I did fieldwork in Iran, recently arrested three Australians. I mean, Iran has a long history of arresting dual nationals, but until recently, Iran has kind of held off arresting singular nationals like it doesn't usually arrest people who are just american or just british or just australian but it's it recently arrested three australians two of whom were also recently released but there's a third british australian who is still in an iranian jail and she was arrested on what to my mind are relatively flimsy accusations of spying especially when she was there for a conference.
0: Yeah, she was the academic, right? She was an academic, she, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: And as a result, a group of universities in Australia have now formally banned their staff from going to Iran. And it made me think, what are the ethics of anthropologists doing fieldwork in, in, inverted commas, dangerous places? And what are our kind of uh, ethical responsibilities both to ourselves and to the people who we're working with in those places?
2: That's so hard. I think if something is deemed to be like off-limits then i guess i automatically think that it sort of for those reasons it's more important that we make an effort to breach those boundaries and to not to not shy away from things that are seen as dangerous because of that Simply because if other people aren't doing that work, then those places, like a place like Iran, won't be seen or illuminated to people beyond that place in the way that anthropology can do. Yeah, my first personal response is to say, if we're told that we shouldn't be there, and that means that most people aren't going to pursue that kind of work, then it becomes more important to to make the effort to to investigate and to cultivate relationships and, and to continue ethnography in, in those sorts of places. But yeah, I, I'm not in that position. So it's it's really hard to say that I will put myself in that situation. And and certainly if I was trying to, then my university might stop me.
1: But then turning that around, there are these questions of like ethics to whom and responsibility to whom. I know some people who the couple that were, or the Australian couple that were arrested were just kind of a bit annoyed with them because they were, they'd been like flying a drone.
3: They were doing stupid things. Yeah, they were. And
1: so that was actually seen as not fully considering their responsibilities to others. Like in doing something that was a bit silly or a bit reckless, they weren't actually realising that they're part of a community who is suddenly drawn into that Mm. web.
0: And I guess that's a different thing to going to a conference as an academic and doing your job or going on fieldwork. Would you go back currently, Simon? No. Because ANU has said no.
3: Not just because and knew because I'd be worried about getting arrested and I don't want to go to jail.
0: I think yeah. that's fair. And I, like mm. that kind of is what it comes down to for me, right? Like there's this tension between, on the one hand, the need to explore areas that are off limits because that's important for knowledge production. And then on the other hand, yeah, but I don't want to do it. And then on the other hand, You go into that space, I know I have three hands, (laughs) we're we're all doing like hand gestures right now. Um, So on my third hand, you go into a space and don't get arrested and get out again, but your participants remain in that space. And so I think part of your question was what are our responsibilities to our participants who remain behind in dangerous situations if we get to leave and from a personal perspective I would find that extremely challenging psychologically and therefore probably not put myself in that position in the first place and does that make me a coward I'm not sure probably but it's still not something that I would be willing to put myself through and that's the epitome of privilege, right? Because I have the choice not to put myself in that position and I have the choice to remove myself from that position if I do.
2: I completely agree that removing ourselves from our field sites can demonstrate the kinds of privileges we have of mobility and and choice. But I I think there's so many gradients of that. And I think any field site we leave, just by virtue of being able to come and go, we use that power, whether the field site that we research in is dangerous or not
3: the danger of not doing fieldwork in dangerous places in inverted commas is that you end up with whole swathes of the world which remain kind of obscured and I think obscurity is in and of itself a kind of dangerous thing the more light we can shine on places the better we can understand the less likely there is to be misunderstandings or etc that lead to kind of conflicts and so on there's a researcher who, I can't remember his name, I'll find out and put it in the show notes. <laughs> Very good. I think he's an anthropologist by trade and he did interviews of detained ISIS fighters in Iraq. And some of the information he got is useful not only to people who are interested in it, but also it has like practical outcomes, like it's useful in de-radicalization mm. and so on. So if we don't do that research, if we're not in those dangerous places, we, we run out of that information. Alex, what are you talking about this week?
1: The vice chancellor of the Australian National University, Brian Schmidt, recently announced that they're going to cap student numbers at about 9,500 undergraduates, which I know by the standards of some international universities is huge. By the standards of a lot of Australian universities, that's tiny. It's an interesting announcement in and of itself, but the way he justified it is to say universities really need to continue to be the link between research and teaching, His argument is that a lot of universities, they'll have really specialised teaching staff and specialised research staff. And his argument is that that's not a great way to go because universities should be all about the link between education and research. And if they just focus on education, he thinks the market will step up and create highly specialised education institutions who will teach as well as universities, maybe better. And then universities will sort of lose their place. Now, I think that's actually a really interesting point, And I think he makes a strong argument at the same time. I think we've all, in our undergrads, in our masters, been sat in lectures and the lecturer wasn't very good. Maybe they didn't have a passion for the teaching. Or on the other hand, maybe they they did, but they just weren't sucked. trained. Or they just, yeah, or perhaps <laughs> they just weren't that good. So it's really good to say that universities need to focus on this link between education and research but what does that look like in practice?
0: My thoughts about the research teaching nexus is that like we have that specialty education facility for adults anyway right in Australia it's called TAFE in other countries I think they call it college rather than calling it university like that exists and you can train in an area without having to go into the theory behind an area. And you can have people teaching you who are specialists in those areas without them having done research about that. However, when you ask the question about how do you improve anthropology teaching? Well, I have to admit, when I was learning about anthropology, I found it a lot more valuable to hear about anthropology from people who had been in the field. It's difficult to read about that experience and regurgitate it, I guess, into a classroom. But see, this is where my third hand is coming in Mm -hmm. handy again. (laughs) On the third hand, I also think that that again comes back to the experiential aspect, which is the same thing that TAFEs and colleges provide, um, not the theory. I think you can teach anthropological theory without having been in the field and you can be very good at that. So it's that hands-on experience that sort of draws anthropology apart from something like philosophy that
2: requires a different kind of teacher. It's interesting how we and how Brian Schmidt seems to be saying that the way to bring teaching and, and research together is through one person I think there must be a whole heap of other ways that that nexus can be explored there's certainly something to be said for for teachers to have field work experience but I thought that was a requirement at ANU that doesn't mean you're like a seasoned academic who's getting ARC grants or whatever why is it that we feel that that's the only way to bridge that gap that the same the very same person who's who has like a whole established research career has to be the same one standing in front of a room I don't have an answer to that, but I'm curious about why. why we assume that it all has to fall upon a singular person.
0: Does it come down to whether we train researchers to be good teachers? Because we have loads of training on how to be a good researcher,
2: but should we be training people to be good teachers as well? I do get really frustrated about how little teaching seems to be valued. I've heard so many people in academic environments speak really disparagingly about their teaching experience and I think that the culture that that produces in students as well, when they see their teachers resenting doing teaching, I think that's so damaging and so sad.
3: I think that to answer Alex's question, I think that like others here, I would put more emphasis on teaching as a skill in and of itself. I think there's too much
2: dismissiveness
3: towards teaching as the kind of institution, is That's really unfortunate. But, you know, I had a conversation recently with someone who is a, an academic and she was saying to me that if you're a really good researcher and a mediocre teacher, you'll still find yourself promoted. But if you're a great teacher and a mediocre researcher, you'll probably end up finding your career stalling. And so I understand why people don't bother to put as much effort into their teaching as they do into their research.
0: So we agree that we all really value education and that academia kind of doesn't.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you.
0: Yeah, well, that's not that's a really very tragic. cheery note to end on, is it? <laughs> but we agree. That's, yeah. <laughs> that is so unusual. So I would like to thank Alex DeLoyer on my left. Thank you very much. Simon Theobald in front of me. Uh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just have a nap? No. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Simon. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and Kylie Wong Dolan.
2: Thanks, Jody. Thanks, everyone.
0: And I've been your host today. I'm Jodie Lee Trembath. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange, not just the people in the room, also Julia Brown. And our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fung. We also have two interns with us at the moment, uh, Liam Walsh and Shea Win Leong, and they are also excellent. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including spotify and if you'd like to support us please check out our patreon page which is patreon.com backslash the strange that's not strange familiars which is another fun
2: podcast it's just not ours oh we just had a bit of a glitch this is kylie <laughs> You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music was by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.